Secure messengers are going to war over a new UK proposal. Twitter is dropping the ball on privacy. Rogue 2FA apps are stealing your codes. The FBI is admitting to buying location data and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 125, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. I am back this week, but unfortunately something came up last minute for Henry and he is not here this week, but hopefully we'll both be back next week. Our promo segment. So far, we have managed to keep Surveillance Report completely sponsor-free, and that is entirely thanks to you guys. So if you want to help contribute to that, we do have a Patreon. For $5 a month, you can be part of the Q&A. For $10 a month, you get an ad-free spot where you don't even hear this segment, which is awesome. And for the record, if you just want to support us and you don't really like care about the perks, you can give less than $5 on Patreon, but you just, again, won't get any of the perks. Or alternately, you can use LibrePay which is open source and, again, doesn't come with any perks, but is another great way to support us that's a little bit... It's not Patreon. And, you know, believe me, I, I understand some people don't like Patreon. I'm among them, but we're there because a lot of people are, so here's an alternative. And then, of course, the absolute best alternative is Monero, which is an anonymous cryptocurrency. It's super easy to use. You get some Monero, you send some Monero, you're anonymous. Congratulations. We don't know anything about you, but we do see those contributions and we appreciate it very, very much. So thank you everyone who helps. It is greatly appreciated in keeping us going. And then of course, just a quick reminder, we got a little over a month and a half before Monerotopia. I will be there doing a workshop. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I'll also just be walking around and stuff. We have a 10% off code for any of you who are interested in attending. That is no surveillance one. You can get more information on the website. Should be a good time if you are able to attend. With that, we're going to jump into our highlight story. Secure messaging apps line up to warn UK's online safety bill risks web security. So I'm going to quote the article here. Secure messaging apps are lining up to oppose measures in the UK government's online safety bill. They argue will do the opposite of promoting online safety by undermining the robust encryption web users rely on to safeguard their communications, unquote. So among them, we have some familiar names. We have WhatsApp, we have Signal, we have Matrix, we have Proton, and Tutanota. And that's just the ones the article's name check. There's, believe me, I'm sure there's plenty more that are speaking up about this. All of these companies have basically said, we're going to ignore this bill. We're not going to comply. If it comes into effect, we're either just going to relocate our offices or just ignore you and refuse to cooperate. They all stand firm in their claim that there is no such thing as a backdoor that only the good guys can use, which we agree here at Surveillance Report. We've talked about that before. And they point out that they can't weaken the app for certain users and not others. So they can't make a second version of WhatsApp, for example. They're the ones who use this example. They said, hey, we've got, I think they said like less than 2% of our users are in the UK and we can't make a version that's only available in the UK that's weaker but still preserve security for all the other people they may be communicating with. Those things are incompatible. So we're just going to stop playing ball. We're out. Later. Peace. Later, blood. A couple of these companies actually, like Tutanota and WhatsApp, have pointed out that if this goes ahead, the UK is basically the first Western liberal democracy to censor apps for no reason other than being encrypted. And it would put them on par with oppressive regimes like Russia and Iran. Some of them, such as Matrix, have put additional emphasis on refusing to implement client-side scanning. Uh, They talked to one of the developers of Matrix, and he specifically pointed that out. He's like, we can't do that. It runs counter to our entire brand. It would weaken user privacy and security, and we would lose a lot of of users over that. Like, we're not going to do it. Matrix and Signal have both said that they would basically close any offices they have in the UK and relocate. Signal specifically also pointed out that they would just use proxies. So basically, everybody is straight up saying, like, we're just going to ignore you. We're, we're not going to play ball. We're not going to do this. 
We'll leave if we have to. And the article also points out that like this would be a really hard bill to enforce. Like if these companies pull out, it would be relatively difficult, not impossible, but it would be relatively difficult to ensure that users are complying with the law because sure, they can block them from the app store, but that's really only going to work for iPhone users. People are still going to you know, sideloaded on Android and stuff like that. And if the company's not playing ball, then they're not going to turn over a list of users with those IP addresses. Like it's really, if these companies won't cooperate, it's really not going to be good for the UK to try and enforce it. The article then goes on to explain the history of the bill, why this is so controversial, and they do address some of the workarounds, like I mentioned the signal proxy. They also relayed some of the calls for the UK to crack down on child abuse using traditional measures. We've covered this before. We covered one just a couple months ago. There's numerous studies that come out every single year that say that mass surveillance doesn't work. So yeah, these guys are right. Like if nobody obviously is standing up here and saying like, yay for criminals and yay for child abuse, nobody is in favor of that. But this is a misguided effort study after study has shown mass surveillance doesn't work. Cops need to do it the old school way. They need to cultivate their informants. They need to, uh, you know, be active. They need to go out and do their investigations, follow up on them. And that's ultimately what's going to work best. I think this is definitely going to put a lot of pressure on the UK. Like WhatsApp obviously is a really big name. And even though they're sitting up here and they're saying, well, we only have 2% of users in the, the UK. I mean, the UK, like a lot of Europe is a melting pot. I don't know the exact demographics, but I'd imagine it's similar to America, maybe even more. And I think that if they start banning WhatsApp, which is unfortunately very, very common in the rest of the world, they're going to get a lot of pissed off people. And again, Signal's here, Matrix here, Proton, Tutanota, like all of these people. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this work. Maybe I'm just being optimistic. Bummer Henry's not here. I'm sure he'd have a little more insight, but we'll keep you guys updated. This hasn't actually passed yet. This is still being proposed, but I'm very hopeful that this pressure is going to cause some reconsideration. With that, let's jump into the data breaches. We have a lot of data breaches this week. Real quick, actually, we've been having a lot of data breaches. I would love to trim this section down a little bit. So if you guys have any suggestions for how we can do that, like any criteria that we can apply to this section to filter out some of the less important ones, that would be awesome because I have a hard time knowing which ones I should and shouldn't talk about. Or if you guys like it as is, just let us know that too. That's fine. Anyways, we're going to start off with a big one. The FBI is investigating a data breach impacting U.S. House members and staff. Quoting the article, DC HealthLink is the organization that administers the healthcare plans of U.S. House members, their staff, and their families, unquote. So the data allegedly includes 170,000 individuals. It includes name, date of birth, address, email address, phone number, social security number, and crap tons more that is listed in the article. And this is also really weird. I, so I was making the notes to the article, and it says, according to an update, the FBI has purchased some of this data. And they didn't really go into detail on that. They didn't say why they purchased it. They didn't justify their hypocrisy because I know the government here in the U.S., we floated, I think we passed something, but I could be wrong. At one point, we floated the idea of making it illegal to pay the ransom for a data breach. Well, for ransomware specifically. But yeah, that was just, that was kind of weird. I didn't expect to see that in the article. We'll keep you updated as always. For now, I think they're doing the whole like, we're investigating, we're unable to confirm the usual This next one's a little bit different, but similar. It says, All Trails data exposes precise precise movements of former top Biden official. So All Trails is a hiking social media app, kind of like Strava or Fitbit or any of those apps where you can like publicly post your workouts or your scores or whatever, that kind of stuff. Very common. A researcher found that one of the user's public profile showed multiple trips around the D.C. area and specifically to Capitol Hill, like certain offices, and back to a specific home. So the researcher was able to use this data to identify the user as a former member of the Biden administration. I just real quick want to throw it out there. Remember that Trump's Twitter password was guessed by a human? 
twice. So clearly bad security is not a partisan problem. Both parties are terrible at this. Vice is not naming the official because they have not responded to attempts to contact them and the profile is still public. Specifically of interest, Vice was able to verify that the home in question did belong to the official and that the official had an account with all trails by attempting to use their personal email to sign up. Number one, that's why is it a personal email if it's public? That's really weird to me. So there's a few lessons we can learn here. Try to remove your data from public records. Try to keep it out of there in the first place if you can. I know Henry's a real big fan of Delete Me. Simple login, non-addy, use uh, email aliasing and stuff like that. And as usual, I just want to point out that this is part of a bigger problem, which is crappy defaults. According to Vice, at no point are users who sign up warned that their their data is public, the profile data. They're not offered an option to like easily set it to private. I mean, you can go into the settings. And for the record, I recommend everybody go into the settings when they first create an account or even every once in a while. Like, well, you know, I haven't checked the settings on this app in like a year. Let me go through and look at them and see if anything's changed. But yeah, it's just by default, they're set to public. And when you join the app, it's just like, hey, welcome. Here's all these other settings that don't address this at all. So, and it's not like it stops the company from collecting that data. People just don't think about this kind of stuff. That's just the way it is. So it's really unfortunate. Defaults are really powerful, you guys. Okay, sorry, let me try to speed this up. So the next post says, ransomware gang posts video of data stolen from Minneapolis schools. So this ransomware group is demanding a million dollar ransom, or you can pay $50,000 for a one day extension, like $50,000 per day. In a first that we have never seen before, the attackers published a 51-minute video showing all of the data that was allegedly stolen. I'm assuming it shows, like, the files and maybe opens a couple of them for, uh, like, proof. I doubt they're actually, like, showing all the data. MPS, which is Minneapolis Public School, has 36,370 students and staff and has said that they will not pay. They claim that they have recent backups to restore from, so good job there. And they also say that they found no evidence of data theft. However, they have still warned about 4,500 staff about the elevated risk of phishing and scam attempts. Next comes from AT&T, who has alerted 9 million customers of a data breach after a vendor hack. This includes first names, wireless account numbers, wireless phone numbers, and email addresses. For some customers, but not all of them, it also included plan data like the plan name, past due amount, minutes used, and more. AT&T insists that the data is several years old, and therefore this is really not a big deal. They did not name who the vendor was, and a quick note here, this is a great excuse to talk to your friends and family about security practices. I do know some friends and family that use AT&T, and as soon as I heard about this story from a podcast called Security in 5, by the way, I highly recommend it if you guys are audio podcast listeners. As soon as I heard about it, I texted some of them and I was like, hey, AT&T got hacked. I don't know exactly what info was stolen yet, but like you may want to change your passwords just to be safe. Keep an eye out for any uh, phishing emails, scam phone texts, anything like that. One of them, of course, messaged me back. She's older and she was like, I don't even know my AT&T password. And it's like, cool, let's talk about password managers. Cerebral Inc. is notifying 3,179,835 patients of tracking technologies breach. So Cerebral is an online therapy company. And since I missed last week's episode, let me go ahead and rant about how screwed up this is real quick because Henry really hit the nail on the head last week. I've been very open with a lot of you guys. I've been diagnosed with depression. I was never officially diagnosed with anxiety, but they tend to go hand in hand and I definitely do have the symptoms sometimes. And this is screwed up because I've been to therapy. I've been to online therapy and in-person therapy and like Henry nailed it last week. It's really important to have that safe space where you feel like you can open up to somebody and talk to somebody. And the more stuff like this keeps happening with Cerebral and BetterHelp and all these companies, the more that it's just like, it it creates the space of you can't trust people. The breach is the result of quote, pixels and other similar tracking technologies on the mobile application and websites to share user data, protected health data, and financial data, unquote. 
This has been going on since 2019 and could include name, phone number, email address, date of birth, IP address, other demographic information, assessment responses, so like answers to questionnaires and stuff, pharmacy member numbers, and much, much more. Those were just some of the most concerning ones, but there's a lot out there, you guys. So next up, Acer has confirmed a breach after the attackers offer to sell stolen data. (laughs) The data includes product documentation, binary files, info on backend infrastructure, disk images, BIOS-related information, and digital product keys. No customer data, but that still doesn't necessarily make this any better because this could be information that could be used to find vulnerabilities in the future, unfortunately. The article notes that Acer had another breach in October of 2020, uh, excuse me, October of 2021 as well. Our final story says sandbox blockchain game breached to send emails linking to malware. I'm just going to own my bias. I think 99% of blockchain is dumb. I think crypto and non-crypto. I think 99% of the time when something says blockchain, it's just a buzzword. I'm sure there's blockchain technology, but they just shoved it in there for no reason. It doesn't need blockchain. It's pointless. It's blow at that point because it's not necessary. And it's just a scam. I think blockchain games are a novelty. I don't really like care either way. I don't play games with the intention of earning money. I do it to relax and have fun. So yeah, I think these games are, again, at best a novelty and more likely probably just an extension of the scam that most blockchain is. Not all, but most. So that is my bias, just going into this. Quoting the article, The Sandbox is a blockchain-based open-world multiplayer game with over 350,000 active monthly users, offering them ways to build, own, and monetize interactive content like virtual worlds, items, and experiences, unquote. On February 26th, an attacker gained access to several email addresses belonging to the company and used them to send emails to users containing links to malware. The Sandbox is now enforcing two-factor for employees. They're also advising users to enable two-factor. They're advising users to use antivirus, which generally we're not a fan of around here. Um, We think that Windows Defender and Macs, I think they have like X-Protect or something like that. They're usually plenty unless you're being specifically targeted. And they are also advising players to format their computers if they suspect that they have been compromised. All right, with that, let's move into companies. And we have disappointing news out of Twitter. Twitter just let its privacy and security protecting Tor service expire. Quoting the article, visiting the Tor-specific Onion site address will now deliver a warning that the certificate verifying the site's authenticity has lapsed. Quick note, I could be wrong. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. It's arguably advised against to use a TLS certificate on an Onion re- or an onion link for this very reason, because technically you don't need it. If I understand correctly, when you navigate to an Onion site, which I also just realized real quick. So for those who don't know, an Onion site is a, a dark website. You you use the Tor browser and you go to this like really complicated, like I was about to pull up protons, but like I'm not even going to read it. It's like 26 characters long and it's just random gibberish. It's a public key. It's a key pair and that's the public key. So when you go to that site, you get a lot of protections, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. If you think of the dark web as kind of like an ocean, so you're coming in at the clear net in the surface, you go under when you're in Tor, and most of the time, if you use the Tor browser and go to like twitter.com, you're coming back up through the surface. But with with an onion link, you never surface again. It's all on the dark web. So you don't really need a TLS certificate because there's nobody to trust. You're on the site. Anyways, that's just what I've heard. Uh, Again, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but point being, they didn't need a TLS certificate in the first place, unless this is a different certificate they're talking about. Being Twitter, I could understand why they would go ahead and put one there. It doesn't hurt anything. And it'll certainly make like less advanced users feel more comfortable. So the certificate lapsed, which wouldn't really be a big deal from what I understand, except that choosing to continue anyways delivers an error page. So it's just dead. It's totally dead. Twitter no longer has a communications department either. So there's nobody to reach out to and be like, hey, your site's dead. What's going on? The Tor project is tried anyways. 
clearly it's not going well. You can still visit twitter.com via any browser, of course. But like I said, there are additional benefits you get using an actual Onion address. So for example, there's less risk of a TLS man-in-the-middle attack, like somebody spying on your connection. It's easier to circumvent censorship because, again, you never come back up to the surface. So less risk of DNS tracking. The, the article has a link to it. There's all kinds of benefits. So this is really, really unfortunate. It seems very unlikely that this is going to come back as one of the security engineers that they interviewed who actually knew a lot of the people on the Twitter team. He said that everyone he knew of that was working on the Onion site is no longer employed there. There might be a few people that are still working on it that he doesn't personally know, but probably not, or at very least not many. So it's very unlikely that this is going to get fixed anytime soon. Henry left some notes here before he uh, took off. He said, just to add, Twitter hasn't published their transparency report in a long time. Well, when it's pa- or well past when it's due. Look, guys, we we rag on Elon Musk, and I'm not going to lie. It's mostly because so many people are so busy putting him on a pedestal of like he's God's gift to mankind, and we should be all grateful just to exist on the same planet as him, which, first of all, I'm very skeptical of any kind of hero worship like that. That's really dangerous. But like you guys have to be objective. They're not being transparent. They're not supporting the Onion site, which is critical for people in repressed countries If anybody in the privacy community was doing this, like if Proton like let their onion site just die, you guys would be screaming that they're a honeypot. You know what I mean? Like if anybody else did this, you guys would be like, oh, they can't be trusted. They're terrible. So stop making excuses for Twitter. Okay, I'll get off that soapbox. Instead, let me get on one about Android. This headline says Android March 2023 update fixes two critical code execution flaws. The article says that user interaction is not needed for exploitation. So that's very worrying. Unfortunately, there's really not much in this article. Google has withheld virtually all information until the updates can be fully rolled out. Also, like somebody let me know if I did this wrong. I have a pixel. I checked. I don't have the update. It still says I'm running the security update from February. The article says this thing is dated March 5th. It's March 11th as I'm recording this. Where is my update? I thought as a Pixel user, I would have updates faster than other Android users. And on that note, if anybody's watching this within the first few days it comes out, I would be really interested to know if you're on any flavor of Android and already have this update. I'm curious to know if anybody's getting it faster than Google because I I swear you think I'd have it by now. Okay, anyways, enough rambling there. There are also 29 additional fixes in the update, including, quote, high severity escalations of privilege, information disclosure, and denial of service problems, unquote. And then just throwing it out there, the article notes that Android 10 hit end of life in September of 2022 and therefore will not receive these updates. So if you are on Android 10 or any sort of custom OS using Android 10, you should definitely consider updating if you can. Okay, on to some good news about Google and Android. The developer preview of Android 14 focuses on privacy and security. Basically, the first preview came out last month. The new preview's out this month. I think they said it'll be hitting closed beta or like a beta in April, and it'll probably be public like later this summer, like around August maybe, July or August. Here's what we know from this newest version. The first version focused more on developers. I mean, they all do because they're developer previews. But this one expands a little bit more on privacy and security, and we have more idea. They're adding a photo picker, which allows you to give apps access to only specific photos instead of all of them or albums or whatever. They're adding a screenshot detection API to, quote, prevent unnecessary access to users' data, unquote. I'm going to speculate and say that's probably focused more on, like, stalkerware because... I actually tried to screenshot something in Signal the other day, and it gave me a little pop-up that was like, oh, your admin has disabled this. I guess something similar to that already exists. I don't know if this is going to expand on that, or again, maybe it's going to prevent unauthorized screenshots from other apps. I don't know, but there's that. They're also reworking the Credential Manager Platform API, which is going to be back-supported all the way to Android 4.4, which is KitKat from 2013. This will support password and passkey management. Um, So again... (laughs) 
I'm not a developer, but if I understand that correctly, I guess maybe it's getting a built-in password manager, which I'm not a fan of the built-in password managers, but I mean, hey, it's better than not using one at all. So that's pretty cool. And pass keys. I, I know everybody's kind of got mixed opinions on them. I personally am waiting to see how it goes, but it, Henry's really excited about them. They're very promising. I will agree with that. It's very promising if it's done well, and it is an open standard for for those of you who are like, I'm not going to put all my keys in, in Android. Okay, there's also iOS. There's custom OSs. Very, very possible. And then last, they've got improved memory management optimization. So for example, you can quickly disallow background processes from apps that have gone into a cached state. There's also a lot of other non-privacy tweaks, like you can change the temperature units and the first day of the week, regardless of your location. So if you're from the UK and you're in America and you're like, screw Fahrenheit, which I agree. The article also notes that the system images are available to the public. So if you're on a custom OS, your developers are probably, hopefully, already working on Android 14 and getting it ready for you. So by the time it drops, you are good to go. And our last Google story, this is real quick. It says Google expands VPN access to all Google One members, rolls out new dark web report feature. This is a real short update. Honestly, it's just because we've talked about Google VPN in the past. Uh, quick recap for those who don't know, we're not huge fans. We would say to it's better to use Mulvad, iVPN, Proton. Uh, Henry's a big fan of Windscribe. But VPNs in general are rather limited. So there's pros and cons to this one. Like it's real cheap. So yeah, let's go ahead and jump in there. Google VPN is now available to all one members, including the basic $2 a month plan and has added a dark web report feature, which will alert you when your personal information is found on the dark web. So, I mean, yeah, it's real cheap, which is nice. And it's a, it's a transfer of trust. All VPNs are. So you're taking that trust away from your ISP and moving it over to Google, which in some parts of the country is your ISP. So you're not actually doing anything there. I'll be honest. Like, my ISP right now is AT&T. I would rather trust Google than AT&T, to be frank with you. Like I said, our personal opinion is there are better choices out there, but I could see very, very few limited use cases for this. It's also only available in about 10 countries, so you're probably better off going with one of the reputable providers anyways. And then for the whole dark web report thing, just freeze, freeze your credit, especially uh, if you're in a country where that's free, like America. Canada recently got that option. I believe the UK has that option. I know it's not available everywhere, but definitely look into it and see if it is. Last story comes from Microsoft. It says Microsoft enables LSA protection by default in the Windows Canary build. So LSA is local security authority. Quoting the article, LSA protection is crucial for safeguarding against the theft of sensitive information or login credentials by blocking untrusted code injection into the LSA process and blocking process memory dumping. As described by Microsoft in the Windows 11 security app, it helps protect user credentials by preventing unsigned drivers and plugins from loading into the LSA. In simpler terms, LSA protection acts as a gatekeeper, ensuring that only authorized entities can gain access to critical information required for user authentication and system security. However, there are caveats, since this new Windows 11 security option will only be enabled if it passes an audit checking the system for incompatibilities. Microsoft did not explain what compatibility issues it's checking for. Windows insiders can check if, check if LSA protection is enabled on their systems by opening the Windows security app and going to device security core isolations page. They can also use the Windows event log to check if any LSA plugins and drivers have been blocked by opening the event viewer and looking for the events with 3033 and 3063 IDs under the Microsoft Windows code integrity slash operational. And all of that is in the article, of course. With that, we'll move into research. And I have one that I think you guys are really going to be interested in. It says, thought you'd opted out of online tracking? Think again. So this article is actually really straightforward, but hard to summarize. I'm going to do my best. And I apologize if I make a mistake here. So basically, researchers created several different browser personas. However, they did it. Virtual machines or actual machines, whatever. And they were all different. You know, this person's into sports and this person's into science and whatever, whatever. Including a blank control persona. So they had one persona that was just no personality. It's just a fresh persona. 
Then they visited a bunch of top websites with cookie banners and clicked, no, opt out, do not track me. Then they used packet sniffing to examine outgoing traffic and see how much ads were being sold for. The article goes into detail about all this, but basically all this information, like your persona and how much ads are going for, is all done in browser. So they were able to like see all this on the client side and then look at it as it went back to the server to go, hey, here's how much for an ad, who's going to bid? In theory, if the advertisers were respecting the opt-out request, then ads should have been more or less the same across all personas as well as the blank persona because data is not being targeted. They're just non-targeted ads, which are inherently less valuable. But they found that this was not the case. One platform did seem to be honoring this a little bit better than the others, but for the most part, all of them, granted, I don't know how scientific you would consider this. Uh, they did write a full-on research paper, which is linked in the article. So you can feel free to check that out and see their uh, their methodology and stuff. It seems to me like this might be one of those things where maybe this isn't the most academic approach they could have taken, but I still think it's interesting. The article notes that your best defense are privacy tools like ad and tracker blockers, such as uBlock Origin and privacy browsers. Like they specifically name check Brave, but we'll also go ahead and say Tor and Firefox. Again, this is just kind of showing like these opt-outs really aren't doing much, which is stupid because the whole reason they're there is GDPR saying you have to give people a, a, a choice to opt out. And we've even seen some lawsuits recently where people were sued because they're not making the opt-out easy. And now we find out it doesn't matter if it's easy or not because they're still not respecting it. This is really unfortunate. I'm going to talk about this a little further, but, you know, Henry and I are big fans of regulation and we do believe that regulation does have uses. It's not totally useless, but at the same time, we are the first to admit that it's not perfect. And this is a perfect example. And we're a huge fan of using privacy tools with regulation. Like if somehow a law passed tomorrow in the US that was like, hey, you can't log people's text messages. I'm not going to stop using Signal, okay? And I wouldn't encourage any of you to either. Okay, this next research comes from Sophos. It says, beware rogue 2FA apps in App Store and Google Play. Don't get hacked. Quick shout out for those of you who like to follow other privacy YouTubers. Naomi Brockwell's latest video was about this exact research and she did an amazing job. Uh, I just wish she'd have mentioned Rivo on iOS. That's kind of my only complaint. So yeah, I recommend it. If you're not following her, you should be. Basically, this article discusses how the app stores, both of them, App and uh, Play, are riddled with scam TOTP apps. And the reason they're scams is because they'll, they'll generate TOTP codes for you, but they're doing everything from like using dark patterns to trick you into paying to sending your seeds back to the server, your, your actual TOTP codes. So the app has half your login and not for the record, not in like a we back up your data kind of sense, just in a malicious like, yeah, we'll take a copy of that. And they all look very similar. The page actually has all the different logos on them. For people who are uneducated, people like our parents maybe, I mean, obviously not all of them, but our parents, our grandparents, um, friends who may not be as tech savvy as us, it may be hard for them to tell if they're getting the right legitimate app or if they're downloading one of these scam ones. So the article kind of goes towards pointing out that Apple has a built-in TOTP app. Google has Google Authenticator, although that's available in the Play Store. It's not like loaded onto the device. Around here, we generally recommend Aegis or Rivo. Aegis for Android, Rivo for iOS. And um, if you're being good with your security, we also think that if it fits your threat model, it's okay to use like Bitwarden or KeePass and load your TOTP codes into there. Again, that's kind of a risk. You're putting all your eggs in one basket, but it is an option if, if you're taking the right precautions. And then I guess just education, helping your friends and family know like what are the good ones, how to find them, letting them know to look out for these scam apps. Yeah, 
Very unfortunate. Final story from research says new TPM 2.0 flaws could let cyber criminals steal cryptographic keys. The trusted platform module TPM 2.0 specification is affected by two buffer overflow vulnerabilities that could allow attackers to access or overwrite sensitive data such as cryptographic keys. Uh, For those who don't know, TPM is a hardware-based technology that provides operating systems with tamper-resistant secure cryptographic functions. It can be used to store cryptographic keys, passwords, and other critical data, making any vulnerability in its implementation a cause for concern. While a TPM is required for some Windows security features, such as measured boot, device encryption, uh, Windows Defender, System Guard, device health attestation, it is not required for other more commonly used features. However, when a TPM is available, Windows security features can enhance security in protecting sensitive information and encrypting data. The new vulnerabilities were discovered by Quark's lab researchers who said the flaws could impact billions of devices with a B. Both flaws arise from how the specification processes the parameters for some TPN commands, allowing an authenticated local attacker to exploit them by sending maliciously crafted commands to execute code within the TPM. Here's the important note before you guys start freaking out. While these flaws require authenticated local access to a device, so they typically require the attacker to have access to your unlocked device, it is important to remember that malware running on the device would meet that condition. So in theory, they could, if they can put malware on your device remotely, then they can have that access. But again, most most malware is spread via like phishing, wrong links, malvertising. So just, you know, use an ad blocker and uh, use common sense. Like I'm not trying to be demeaning or anything, but just, you know, pause and think about your links and stuff like that. Users are recommended to limit physical access to their devices to trusted users, only use signed applications from reputable vendors, and apply firmware updates as soon as they become available for their devices. Okay, with that, let's move into politics. We're going to start off with a story that says the FBI just admitted it bought U.S. location data. Quoting the article, the disclosure came today during a U.S. Senate hearing on global threats attended by five of the nation's intelligence chiefs. Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, put the question of the Bureau's use of commercial data to its director, Christopher Wray. Does the FBI purchase U.S. phone geolocation information? Ray said his agency was not currently doing so, but he acknowledged that it had in the past. He also limited his response to data companies gathered specifically for advertising purpose. Here's his exact quote. To my knowledge, we do not currently purchase commercial database information that includes location data derived from internet advertising. I understand that we previously, as in the past, purchased such information for a specific national security pilot project, but that's not been active for some time. He added that the Bureau now relies on a, quote, court-authorized process, unquote, to obtain location data from companies. It's not immediately clear whether Ray was referring to a warrant or another legal device. Nor did Ray indicate what motivated the FBI to end the practice. Still quoting the article here. I'm sorry. It's kind of long. In its landmark Carpenter v. United States decision, the Supreme Court held that the government agencies accessing historical location data without a warrant were violating the Fourth Amendment's guarantee against unreasonable searches. But the ruling was narrowly construed. Privacy advocates say that the decision left open a glaring loophole that allows the government to simply purchase whatever it cannot otherwise legally obtain. U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Defense Intelligence Agency are among the list of federal agencies known to have taken advantage of this loophole. The Department of Homeland Security, for one, is reported to have purchased the location of millions of Americans from private marketing firms, and they link to all of these in the article. In that instance, the data was derived from a range of deceivingly benign sources, such as mobile games and weather apps. Beyond the federal government, state and local authorities have been known to acquire software that feeds off cell phone tracking data. Asked during the Senate hearing whether the FBI would pick up the practice of purchasing location data again, Ray replied, we have no plans to change that at the current time. Unquote. Once again, this is one of those stories that for veteran listeners and fellow paranoid people, and I say that with affection as a fellow paranoid person, this is kind of a no kidding. We've covered articles about this before. But again, these are these are the kind of stories that make us credible, that give our, our paranoia credibility. 
Okay, moving on. This one's kind of quick. It says Blackbaud to pay thirty, uh, excuse me, three million dollars for misleading ransomware attack disclosure. Cloud software provider Blackbaud has agreed to pay three million dollars to settle charges brought by the SEC, alleging that it failed to disclose the full impact of a 2020 ransomware attack that affected more than thirteen thousand customers. The organizations impacted by the incident include many entities such as charities, foundations, nonprofits, and universities worldwide, from the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and the Netherlands. According to the SEC, the company stated in July 2020 that the attackers behind the May 2020 ransomware attack had not gained access to the donor bank account details or social security numbers. However, BlackBot's technology and customer relations staff soon learned that the threat actors had accessed and stolen the sensitive information. That's kind of it. Again, the moral here for me is I just I don't trust these companies. Always assume the worst and try to be proactive. Assume that anything you put in a digital format will get leaked eventually. Our next story is also a quick one. TikTok whistleblower tells Congress data protections won't stop Chinese access. So quoting the article, a former TikTok employee turned whistleblower has reportedly met with multiple U.S. senators expressing concerns TikTok's plan to secure U.S. user data won't go far enough to stop possible Chinese espionage. The whistleblower told the Washington Post in an interview that properly ensuring U.S. data is secured from Chinese employer, employees excuse me, requires nothing short of a, quote, complete re-engineering, unquote, of the way the app works. Those allegations come just days after another whistleblower raised concerns regarding TikTok's U.S. user controls, unquote. That's pretty much the whole story. Uh, again, like if you're tech savvy, you know it doesn't matter where the servers are. The engineers have access. The only way they won't have access is if the app is completely redesigned to include like zero knowledge and things like that, which I'm not a programmer. I don't even know if that's possible on a social media app like that. Like that's a tall order. For those of you who are less tech savvy, just don't fall for this narrative that like, oh, we just need to move all the data to an EU data center. And now it's going to fix all the problems. Like TikTok's collecting a ton of data. Meta's collecting a ton of data. Google, Apple, Microsoft, all these companies are collecting a ton of data. It doesn't matter where they're based out of. And I can access the data. I have our, our PeerTube instance. If any of you are watching this on PeerTube, you're watching this from Iceland. That's where our server is located. <laughs> Geographical location doesn't mean anything when it comes to this kind of stuff. As long as the app is still owned by China, Chinese engineers will be able to access it. And more importantly, in my opinion, is the fact that they're accessing the data. I don't care where they're from. They're still going to weaponize it against you. Facebook did it. Google's done it. Apple's done it. They're all going to do it. Okay, getting off the soapbox. Our next story comes from Virginia, where it says, Bill to require additional proof of age for porn sites in Virginia heads to Youngkin's desk. I think Youngkin is the governor. Quoting the article, under the bill verifying the age of a person, trying to access these sites would go a step further than simply typing in a date of birth. Websites would have to implement more advanced methods of their choosing to verify age, such as requiring users to submit copies of government-issued ID, biometric scans, or other forms of commercial age verification software. However, this data can be vulnerable to security breaches, wrote the Free Speech Coalition, a national trade association for the adult industry. So, just quick note, obviously those guys have a dog in the race, but... Being a privacy podcast, we agree with them. The group said that it has already received reports from Louisiana of potential identity theft as a result of scammers creating fake adult sites to solicit identification documents. The article says no one spoke in opposition when the bill was debated during the session, but some people took to social media to express their concerns. I get the idea of stopping kids from accessing it, but I'm not super comfortable with having to give Pornhub my ID, wrote a Reddit user last week. The coalition also wrote that social media websites containing pornographic content wouldn't be regulated under the bill because they would only apply to sites where more than one third of the content meets the definition of material harmful to minors. However, the 2022 report from Common Sense Media also found that 18% of teens aged 13 to 17 have seen adult content accidentally through social media. Or, excuse me, 18% of teens 13 to 17 who have seen adult content accidentally did through, through social media. They cited that study earlier. That's why they said also found. A recent Massachusetts Institute of Technology study found that 41% of children 
ages 11 to 14 use a VPN, which the article points out would allow easy access to pornography sites regardless of what state they live in. I'm just going to leave it there. No more commentary necessary with that line. Okay, we're going to hop over to the UK real quick. It says UK takes another bite at post-Brexit data protection reform with new GDPR. So this is a replacement for the proposed data protection and digital information bill introduced last July. This one is literally called number two. It's data, uh, data protection and digital information number two bill. It does retain some of the staples of GDPR. Like, for example, it allows data collection regardless of consent and in a limited number of situations, like if it's for a greater public good. And it also allows the right to a human review of automated decisions. However, there are other drawbacks being proposed, like easing up on requirements for companies to keep records and be proactive about their data processing oversight. They also apparently want to make a new board within the ICO whose members are appointed by the Secretary of State or approved by the Secretary of State. So now we've kind of opened an avenue for some like political agenda getting in there, depending on who's in office. On a positive note, the article notes that since many UK businesses do business in the EU, they may simply choose to adopt the stricter GDPR standards just to make life easier on themselves. Of course, this is all speculation and we'll just keep you guys updated as we hear more. Last but not least, we have ECB to test banks for cyber resilience. I did not write that down. I think it was EU Central Bank or something like that. This is set to begin in 2024. We should have the results by mid-2024. And this is in response to a rise in cyber attacks on financial institutions. So they're basically trying to make sure that all the banks in the EU are prepared for the worst. Unfortunately, that's really all the article had to say. If we hear anything more, we'll keep you guys updated. But that's pretty cool in my opinion. Okay, with that, we'll move into FOSS, free and open source news. And uh, we only have one real short story. It says Proton Drive mobile apps are now open source. Really straightforward. Title says it all. If you click on the link, it takes you to, I use LibReddit, which is a Reddit proxy. It'll take you to LibReddit, which will have the links to the mobile apps for Android and iOS. And with that, we'll move into Misfits. And again, we only have one story. The headline says Murdoch timeline of events. This is exactly what happened the night Paul and Maggie were murdered. This has been a big case, even in the mainstream headlines. But for anyone who's missed the memo, there's a dude named Alex Murdoch. He was a very powerful, very wealthy, I guess, business owner. I don't really know what he did. He's one of those people that was so rich, he just earned interest by existing. But he's from South Carolina. And he was charged with killing his family. Like I said, he was very powerful and very rich. So honestly, it was kind of one of those things where we kind of just assumed he'd get away with it. Even though it's kind of an OJ thing. It's like everybody knows he did it. The trial turned into a total circus like these things do. The reason that I'm sharing this article is because now that the trial is over and a lot of it has become public record, we now have a timeline of events of the night of the crime derived from testimony, cell phone, and vehicle data. Mostly cell phone. I really recommend you guys at least skim through this thing because like literally they break it down into exact timestamps. And they'll pull things like text messages, including content, Snapchat messages, location data, vehicle location data, FaceTime calls, including thin notes like this call was manually deleted from the device record. It's really just a good reminder of how much data our phones collect and reveal about us. And again, things like step counts, like they're, they're literally saying it like 957, he walked 112 steps. It is impressive. And I really think you guys should give it a look if you can. Okay, with that, we'll move into the Q&A section. And Henry always likes to remind people, if you want to ask us a question, that's $5 a month on Patreon. We don't promise that we will answer all of them. Lately, we've been very fortunate. We've only begun like three to five on any given week. They can be anything. They don't have to be about privacy. People have asked us before about movies, music, things like that. 
This week's first question comes from Obvious Void, who asked a really good question. They say, do you guys think it's hypocritical of someone who's in the privacy space also investing into the same companies with stocks? Are they two separate aspects or just contributing to the privacy problem by keeping these companies relevant in tech? So I, I think what they're referring to is like, so for example, I do listen to a couple of personal finance podcasts and they recommend investing in index funds, which is basically a snapshot of, I believe it's the top 500 companies on the stock market stock market, and basically say, whoever's doing the best, we're going to invest in those companies. And historically, that's a, usually a pretty safe bet for the record. The problem is if you're going to go that route, that means that a lot of the companies you're investing in are like Apple, Google, Microsoft, all these, these big privacy invasive companies, Amazon, Meta. I think that's really tough, to be honest with you. One solution is to just invest personally, to go out and research companies in the stock market and be like, hey, I think this company is a safe bet. It's usually not recommended. It takes someone with very, very, very deep knowledge of a particular industry to actually be able to pull that off. Most studies have actually found that day traders and people who actively, that's called actively managing your funds or your stocks, most active managers actually underperform compared to an index fund. Or at very least, they'll do about the same. The other option is there's, I, I forget the name of it, but they're basically like ethically managed funds. And these are getting really popular because they'll basically do, they'll take like the index and then they'll remove like, uh, for example, if they're environmentally focused, they'll remove like the big oil companies and stuff like that. The issue with these funds is that you don't necessarily know. You have to do a lot of research to make sure that they are removing companies you agree with. For example, from an environmental perspective, I would argue that big tech shouldn't be in there either because big tech data centers suck up tremendous amounts of energy and water and are doing very harmful things to the environment. But as far as I know, I've never actually looked into these particular funds. Most of them are, will leave big tech in there. They basically just remove like oil companies and stuff like that. Those ones come with problems too. I think if we're being practical, there's a part of me that says you kind of have to do what's best for your future. And if that means investing in these companies and these funds that are maybe a little bit less than ethical as like a, you know, part of an index fund or something, then I think that's kind of just what you're going to have to do. And I would also argue that it might be more effective to just simply push for those changes in other areas because I really don't know how much companies are paying attention to things like how many people do we have buying our stocks. I think they're paying more attention to the boots on the ground things that affect their stocks. You know, like how much ad revenue are we selling? How many users do we have? Like Facebook's a really good example. Facebook lost users for the first time a couple of years ago or like a year ago. And their stock value dropped by like $2 trillion or something. I'm probably wrong with those numbers. I apologize. But it dropped dramatically like overnight just because they lost users. It wasn't because everybody sold their stocks. Everybody sold their stocks because they lost users. I don't know. Me personally, I guess I would say if I had to choose, I would go with the index funds and I would focus on trying to push these companies in other ways by like speaking out on social media, educating your family and friends, pushing for that change. And then they will either change and adapt and become privacy respecting. Or if the market changes, they will lose all their shares, get kicked out of the index and someone else will replace them. And either way you win. That's what I would do. Again, I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy who listens to a couple of podcasts. This is a really good question though. And I really like it. And if anyone has any better insight, I would very much encourage you to go ahead and weigh in because I would love to hear other people's thoughts who, who know more than I do. And then our last two questions come from Clem. 
The first question says, when Signal Foundation adds usernames to Signal, do you think they're going to continue requiring a phone number? And if so, why? Yes, I do think they will. I would have to go looking for it, but I seem to remember Meredith Wilson explicitly saying we're still going to require a phone number. It just may not be publicly visible, kind of like Telegram. I don't know why, to be honest with you. To their defense, I'm not against the option to add a phone number because it is a very easy lookup method for people who have a low threat model. I'm not opposed to that. I just hate that it's mandatory. But also to their defense, once they add usernames, as long as the phone number can be made not publicly searchable, in my opinion, I think that will get rid of a lot of the concerns I have with the signal phone number thing. I'm just going to leave it at that. Like I know there's some people who disagree. That's fine. And then the second question says, from a security perspective, what would qualify as a pretty good bank, credit union, investment bank, or other financial service to do business with or forced to deal with like credit bureaus? Well, the credit bureaus, there's not much we can do about that, unfortunately. I think that's a game that Unfortunately, unless you're independently wealthy, you're kind of just forced to play that game and you're just going to have to do your best. I would say plant your flag. That's the only real security advice I can give there. Go make your accounts now and keep an eye on them because otherwise attackers will make those accounts and abuse them and they will periodically try to take over your account. We've covered a story a while back about how I think it was Experian. Literally anybody can go in and just be like, oh, I lost my username and then re-register as you and take over your account. So go plant your flag, go check on them often, freeze your credit if you can. As far as banks, I mean, that's really personal preference. Credit unions from, again, from a personal finance perspective, credit unions tend to be better. They tend to have like better rates. They just tend to be more consumer focused and more friendly to you as a person. The flip side is if you go with a smaller bank, they may not necessarily have the same IT staff and the same investment in security and stuff like that. But then on the flip side, if you go with a big bank like Chase, you're putting a target on your back because now you're part of that big bank that is getting attacked millions of times every single day. There's a website called 2FA Directory that lets you see different companies and websites and what 2FA they allow, if any. I would do the usual like strong password and a password manager kind of stuff. But then there's so many other things that go on too. Like what are their practices behind the scenes? Do they enforce employee 2FA? What kind of 2FA is it? Uh, You know, things like that. Like I was actually talking to somebody the other day and pointed out, we don't typically cover a lot of bank data breaches on surveillance report. Like they happen, but they're pretty rare because most banks are actually pretty well invested in security. And it may be frustrating that all they offer is like SMS two-factor and that's not great and they could do better. But clearly they're doing something right in that sense on the back end behind the scenes because we're not seeing a lot of like wide-scale bank data breaches. I would look for a bank that offers good security measures and also just has a good track record, I guess. And probably not SVB right now. Okay, and that was it. So we have messengers going to war over the UK online safety bill, and we will definitely keep you updated on that as we hear more. Twitter has dropped their Tor website, not really holding our breath for it to come back, but God, I would love to be wrong on that one. Rogue 2FA apps, the FBI admitting to buying your location data and more. As always, we'll keep you updated as we hear more in the coming weeks, and we'll bring you a whole new set of stories next week because this stuff is always changing. Again, a reminder, we have so far managed to stay sponsor-free, and that is super awesome. We appreciate you guys. If you want to help that, then we have a Patreon. $5 a month, you can ask a question. $10 a month, you don't have to listen to this promo spot. If you don't care about the rewards, you can give less than $5, or alternately, you can use LibrePay, which there are no rewards, but it's open source, and it's a little bit more privacy-friendly. And then finally, for maximum privacy, we have Monero. So you can go ahead and send us some Monero. We don't see anything about you other than your support, which means the world to us. And again, seriously, like... I'm super proud to be able to say we've never had any sponsors on here. It makes me feel really good. We never have to worry about offending anyone. It's so awesome. So thank you guys for keeping us going. 
Thank you for listening to Surveillance Report. If you want to read any more on any of the stories that we covered today or want to share them with a friend, we have links in the show notes as always. And the final thing we want to ask of you is to share our podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. Again, there were plenty of stories this week that you can go pull those up in the description, send them to a friend and be like, hey, man, did you hear about this? And that opens the door to talk about privacy or say like you should check out this podcast or whatever. So we're trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy and you can help us do that. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you hopefully with both of us next week.